Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. All right, well, we are returning to our sermon series, The Fullness of Life, from John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And this is an abundant life, and it is the life that God intends for every single one of his children. And that's one of the reasons I'm very, very excited about the work that Keith and Lauren are doing with this ministry, because they are instruments of helping people discover the abundant life. And so far, we've looked at several key elements to this kind of life, which include abiding in Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the warfare of the Spirit, and the community of the Spirit. And that last one, we're finishing up today as we finish out, actually, this year-long series, The Fullness of Life. It's coming to a conclusion today. And as we talk about the community of the Spirit, it is true that the full or abundant life is lived in biblical community. And so the key phrase in our study, this module, this part of it has been one another. In Greek, alelon, used a hundred times in 94 different New Testament verses. Again, which tells us this is a big deal in the scriptures. A really big deal. Something that God says, don't miss this. The abundant life is lived in biblical community as we fulfill the one another's of the scriptures. And for this reason, one of the marks of a disciple is that disciples are communal. Letter C. They're intentional about living in biblical community together. And so, so far, these are the one another's that we've covered. Again, we're not going to cover them all. We're going to bring this to a conclusion today, but I feel like we've covered a good representation of them. We started off with talking about the significance of being members one of another. And then welcome, admonish, love and honor, comfort and submit to one another. And so again, today marks the end of our journey in the one another's and also in the Fullness of Life series because next week we're going to embark on a quick-hitting four-week series on the book of Ruth, which will take us right into the season of Advent. But today, the one another that we are going to cover, the mandate that we receive from the Scriptures is pray for one another. Pray for one another. And it comes from James chapter 5, verse 16, where it says, Therefore... Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so this full or abundant life involves a a mutuality of what we call intercessory prayer. We pray for one another, and we're actually going to flesh out this concept of praying for one another in an Old Testament passage. The Old Testament passage is Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. And so if you have Bibles with you and you'd like to open up and turn there this morning, that's where we're going to camp out, is Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. So I'll give you just a moment to get there. And then I'm going to ask if you would stand with me out of reverence for God's word this morning as I read this text. Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. It says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. 
Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, again, we thank you that we do not live this life alone. And your wisdom and your mercy, you have created us to live as a family with certain privileges and responsibilities that go along with being a family. And one of the blessings that comes along with being a family is praying for each other. So God, I pray that as we dive down deep into this text, you would make it come alive to us and that you would stir within us fresh and anew, not just the obligation of prayer, but God, the privilege of prayer, the power of prayer. May prayer become something that isn't something we have to do, it's something we get to do. And so God, use this text, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So this passage breaks down into four main parts that we're going to talk about today. Um, it starts off with an enemy of opposition, a mountain of intercession, a valley of interaction, and then the importance of recollection. And so let's take a look at the first of these, the enemy of opposition in verse 8. Let's take a look at that verse. It says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Who's Amalek? And why is he fighting with Israel? Genesis 36 verse 12 tells us who the Amalekites are. Genesis 36 verse 12 simply says that Amalek was the grandson of Esau. The grandson of Esau. And that's probably a name familiar to you. And you will recall that Esau was a man of the flesh who was ruled by his appetites. The best example of this was when Esau came in from hunting one day. Where are my hunters? Hunting can make you hungry, right? Esau came in hungry and famished, so famished, in fact, that he comes into the house where his brother is, his brother Jacob, his younger brother, and he actually sold his birthright, his inheritance, to this younger brother Jacob, for a bowl of stew. For a bowl of stew. Now that's impulsive, is it not? And short-sighted in thinking. Esau was a man ruled by his flesh and by his appetites. And so Hebrews chapter 12, 16 says this about him. This is, this is very interesting. 
is to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled so that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. I don't know about you, but that's harsh. When the writer of Hebrews is looking for an example of carnality, who did he choose? Esau. Esau. And the NIV goes so far as to use the term godless to describe him. Well, as all of this weren't bad enough for Esau. He, he later was cheated out of his firstborn blessing by the same younger brother, Jacob, the same one who had earlier made the deal for Esau's inheritance. And so it, it comes as no surprise, there's no love lost between these brothers, right? And so except for a brief episode later in their lives, Esau and Jacob were in continual conflict with each other, and so were their descendants. You'll recall that the descendants of Jacob were known as Israelites, and so the descendants of Esau's grandson Amalek, they are known as Amalekites. And so you might guess that the Amalekites, much like their forefather, was a wild and vicious bunch. They were nomadic people who traveled around in the wilderness, raiding and plundering the resources of other people groups. And one of their key successes was the fact that they domesticated camels. They domesticated camels, which gave them a decided advantage over people groups that did not have camels and that were on foot. The Amalekites could ride in, they could plunder, and then they could quickly ride away. And so essentially, the Amalekites were the bullies of the northern Sinai Peninsula, as evidenced by what Moses wrote about him. There, there was an occasion in which Moses looked back on the episode that we're reading about today, and Moses wrote about it, and looking back in Deuteronomy 25, 17, he said, "'Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt.'" how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So the situation, the, the context was this. The Israelites had just fled from slavery in Egypt. They had just crossed the Red Sea. Hooray, right? That's great news. But the problem was they were defenseless. And therefore, they were quite vulnerable to raiders like the Amalekites. Why would that be the case? Well, because the Israelites had been in slavery for how long? 400 years. They'd never been in battle and were completely unprepared to fight. Further, in a caravan of this size, people coming out of Egypt, it was inevitable that some of the weaker, some of the older would lag behind and become separated from the larger group, leaving them especially vulnerable to attack. Well, the Amalekites, they love to take advantage of such situations. And so the Amalekites engage the Israelites, first attacking the end of the line, the weaker ones, the, those who were loosely connected with the group. Now, does anyone see an important spiritual application here? especially as it relates to biblical community. 1 Peter 5.18 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, 
seeking someone to devour. Church, if you are not committed to living in biblical community, guess what? You are especially vulnerable to the attack of the enemy, to that lion who looks for someone to devour. The adversary loves to devour those on the fringes, those outside the safety of community. In contrast, there is a wonderful, God-ordained safety that comes from purposefully living together in biblical community. You've heard it said there's safety in numbers. I think more accurate to say there's safety in community, especially in a community that prays for one another. Which brings us to the second main part of the text, the mountain of intercession. The mountain of intercession. Look at the second part of verse 10 where it says, Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now what's the deal with Moses and his hands? Well, consistently throughout Scripture, raised hands are a picture or a metaphor for prayer. For example, it says in Psalm 141, verse 2, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. The psalmist equates prayer with the lifting of hands. Further, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.8, he said, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So again, we see the correlation, the metaphor, the picture of lifting of hands and prayer. And so Moses goes on top of the mountain And while the battle is taking place below, and he raises his hands to God in prayer, expressing his dependence upon God for what is happening down in the valley. He's interceding for the Israelites. And wouldn't you know it, as long as the hands were held high, as long as there was prayer, intercession on behalf of the Israelites, Israel was victorious. As long as we are in prayer... In absolute dependence upon God, we too will be victorious. The problem is that, like Moses, we get tired, don't we? We get tired. Look at the second half of verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary. Moses' hands grew weary. I don't know about you, but I easily become weary in prayer. And I know that I'm not alone in that. Even the disciples struggled to keep their hands lifted to God in prayer. The Garden of Gethsemane is the most vivid example. The the, the time and the place where they should have been praying the most. And then we read in Matthew 26, verse 40, And Jesus came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And sure enough, defeat was not far away from the sleepless, sleeping, prayerless disciples. For when Jesus was arrested, what became of them? They fled. They ran away in fear. They did give in to temptation. They did give in to fear. And so it was with Moses, for we read in Exodus 17, 11, whenever Moses lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. 
Church, the simple truth illustrated by the sleeping disciples and the Moses with lowered hands is that prayer is the key to spiritual victory and a lack of prayer is the cause of spiritual defeat. Prayer is the key to spiritual victory and a lack of prayer is the cause of spiritual defeat. But, but here's the Captain Obvious quote of the day. You all remember Captain Obvious, right? Prayer's hard. Prayer's hard. It requires unhurried time. You got a lot of unhurried time in your life? It requires focus in a world of distraction. It requires denying our appetites for lesser things to engage in this greater thing. The list goes on. Prayer is hard. And Satan will do everything he can to make it hard. He'll do everything he can to make you tired, distracted, busy, anything but prayer. Because he knows the truth that we just mentioned. Prayer is the key to spiritual victory. A lack of prayer is the cause of spiritual defeat. So the question is, what are we to do when we get tired in prayer and we sleep like the disciples or our hands droop like Moses? We do what they did for Moses in Exodus 17, 12. It says, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. This is such a beautiful picture. And here's where the biblical community concept comes so vividly and beautifully into focus. For there will, in fact, be times, probably many times in our lives, when individually we're tired and potentially prayerless. And again, we just mentioned the danger of prayerlessness. That is the cause of spiritual defeat. Therefore, we need support in prayer. We need support in prayer. The kind of support that Moses received from Aaron and her. We need the support of brothers and sisters to come alongside of us and lift up our hands for us. This is what intercessory prayer is all about. It's the fulfillment of that James 5.16 mandate that we pray for one another. And I don't think it is a stretch in any way to say that without the intercessors, Aaron and her, the outcome of this battle against the Amalekites would have been much different. Israel would have been defeated. As long as Moses' hands were down, what was happening down in the valley? The Amalekites were winning. If those hands don't get raised up in prayer and dependence upon God, Israel would be defeated and so will we. But because of what happened on this mountain of intercession, we read in verse 13, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. I love that word, overwhelmed. He didn't just kind of barely beat them. He overwhelmed them. Israel overwhelmed. This ragtag bunch of former slaves who didn't know how to fight, probably had very few weapons, defeated the mighty Amalekites, the ones with the camels. Not only defeated them, they overwhelmed them. Why? Because the key prayer is the key to spiritual victory and a lack of prayer is the cause of spiritual defeat. However, while prayer is the key 
It is not the only ingredient to victory. I hope you see that in this passage. For you see, there is also the valley of interaction. The valley of interaction. Look at verse 9. Prior to the victory over the Amalekites, we read in verse 9, So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. You guys are familiar with Joshua. Joshua was Israel's first military commander. He is the leader who would succeed Moses and ultimately take the Israelites into the promised land. He is one of those who in faith gave a good report about the promised land and that they could in fact take it and be victorious. But at this moment, Moses commands Joshua to, to form some semblance of an army as best they could, And I can only imagine how Joshua felt in that moment when Moses says, hey, you get some guys together and go fight. I'm going to go up on the hill. Watch. Joshua's like, hey, let's switch roles. Why don't you go fight and I'll go up on the mountain and watch? Because that sounds like a better deal. We, we, We may wonder why the formation of this Israelite army, why was it even necessary? If prayer is the key to victory, why did they even have to fight at all? Why didn't they all just go up on the mountain and pray for God to smite the Amalekites? I believe the answer is this. Our prayers demonstrate faith when we take steps of practical obedience. Our prayers demonstrate faith when we take steps of practical obedience. It's one thing to say, oh God, I trust you. I have faith in you. It's a whole nother thing to get out of the boat when Jesus beckons you to walk on the water, right? It's a whole nother thing. Likewise, in this battle, it's one thing to pray for victory. It's another thing to trust God so much that Joshua forms an army and puts sticks or whatever weapons they have in their hands to go out and face the Amalekites. And when the elements of prayer, faith, and obedience come together... The result is Holy Spirit combustion, an atomic bomb on our enemies, just as it was when the Israelites fought the Amalekites. Look at verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on top of the hill. All right, so here's Joshua stepping out in faith and obedience to what he was commanded to do. And so as prayer, faith, and obedience come together, we have this Holy Spirit combustion produced in the results in verse 13, where it says, And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. This ridiculous excuse for an army, these these terrible fighters defeated the much stronger Amalekites. Why? Why? Because Moses prayed on the mountain of intercession, supported by Aaron and Hur, but also Joshua stepped out in faith and obeyed in the valley of interaction. St. Augustine put it this all in perspective when he said this. He said, pray as if everything depends on God, work as if everything depends on you. Right? Or to put it more bluntly, as I saw on Facebook this week, it was a post, I think, from Jill. Jill, did you? Yeah. God is in control, but he doesn't expect you to lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. (laughs) 
right? We see that with the Israelites. Mountain of intercession, valley of interaction, the combustion, the Holy Spirit explosion that comes when prayer meets faith and obedience. The bottom line is this. We must both pray like Moses and fight like Joshua. We must both pray like Moses and fight like Joshua. So, that's the enemy of opposition, the mountain of intercession, the valley of interaction. Let's end up with the importance of recollection. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. This is interesting. You know, it's like, well, why, why was it important for Moses to write a record of what happened? Do you ever forget stuff? And yeah, we, we forget a lot of maybe details and things that are trivial things, but you know, sadly, we forget important things, don't we? We even can forget things that God has done in our lives, mighty things, his provision and miraculous times when he showed up and we needed him desperately and there he was and he led us through the fire. We can forget. And therefore, when we forget and our next battle comes, what do we do? We fear because we forget. But what gets written down gets remembered. What gets written down gets remembered. And so, Moses recorded, I would even say he journaled all that happened at Rephidim. He wrote about all that God said and all that God did as a memorial so that he would remember, the Israelites would remember, and Joshua would remember. It says, hey, whispered in Joshua's, Joshua's ear. Well, why did they need to do that? Because Joshua was going to be that military leader in the days to come. Joshua, remember, remember what God did to the Amalekites. He's that same God is with you. Don't be afraid. Be encouraged, Joshua, as you face future battles. And the point is this, when God speaks and God moves, it's worth writing down. When God speaks and God moves, it's worth writing down. That is why we encourage you to engage in and participate what is known as a hear journal. Where you read a chapter a day and you highlight a verse or verses that speak to you, you simply take a moment to explain what that passage means in its original context, and then you apply it to your life, responding to whatever it is that God has spoken to you. It's not rocket science, but you know what, church? It's life-changing. It's life-changing. Why? Because when we open God's Word, we fully expect Him to speak. We fully expect Him to move in our lives. And like Moses, it's important for us to record this as a memorial so that we don't forget, so that we will be encouraged as we face future battles. Well, to further memorialize what happened in the battle with the Amalekites, we read in verse 15, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner. Saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is so beautiful. The Lord is my banner. In Hebrew, Jehovah Nisi. 
This is military language, by the way. It's likely stemming from the fact that in the past, in Egypt, Moses most likely would have looked out and observed the army of Egypt organized under various banners, each of those banners representing one of their gods and displaying their allegiance to those gods. But here, Moses makes it clear that his allegiance is to one God alone, Yahweh, the one true living God. Moses lives and operates under a single banner. The Lord is his banner. And church, how important it is that we remember this truth. Jesus is our banner, eclipsing all other banners whether that be nation, race, political party, political candidate, tribe, language, Jesus eclipses them all. He alone is our banner. As it says in Philippians 2.10, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Who is your banner today? What is your banner today? For Moses and the Israelites, one banner, one name, the name of Jesus. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. There's a question that probably needs to be addressed in this passage, and that question is, why was God so harsh in judging the Amalekites? I mean, it's to the point where we read in verse 14, again, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. That's strong language, exceedingly harsh, and it makes us wonder, well, how come? Why was God being so vengeful against the Amalekites? Well, I believe there's an important spiritual reason that contains a lesson for us. Let's go back to Hebrews 12, 15 again. Again, see to it that no one fall, fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. It's that phrase that we want to focus in on again. Unholy like Esau. The Latin word for unholy literally means outside the temple. Outside the temple. Under the old covenant... What did the temple represent? It represented God's presence and ultimately then salvation as they had the sacrifices. And so as we study the tabernacle once upon a time, the tabernacle becomes the more permanent temple, but the same priority, the same practices, sacrificial system representing the salvation for Israel. To be outside the temple meant that you were outside salvation. And so, it is my belief that the Amalekites, these descendants of Esau, who are called unholy, godless, outside the temple, they're a picture, they're a type or a picture of those outside God's salvation. And therefore, as we read our Bibles, we know that those who are outside of God's salvation will incur God's wrath. What does that mean for us today? 
Simply this, you better be inside the temple, inside God's salvation that he has so marvelously and graciously provided for you through Jesus. For the day is coming when his wrath will be poured out on all who are outside his salvation. And so I ask you the very simple question, are you in the temple today? Do you know Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior, having turned from your sins and by faith turned to Jesus alone for forgiveness? See, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is calling you to be inside the temple. He is calling you to be saved and to experience the abundant life that only he can provide. If you're here this morning and you have not yet responded to that call, don't waste another moment. Don't waste another day. We're not promised the next heartbeat, the next breath. We do not know what the future holds. Today is the day of salvation that God has appointed for us. Lastly, I think it would be incomplete for us in this text not to ask the question, where do we see Jesus in the passage? Because the Old Testament is just... I mean, while we know that the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, happens in the Gospels, in the New Testament, Jesus is all over the Old Testament, and this is no exception. There are other elements in this passage which point to Jesus. And first of all, I think we see Jesus. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Moses. Moses the intercessor. Jesus is the greater intercessor. So it's so comforting to know that um, we have an intercessor praying for us constantly. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Isn't that awesome? Jesus is praying for you right now. Moses stood on the Mount of Intercession and prayed for the Israelites. Jesus intercedes for us, but what's the big difference? Moses' hands got tired. The good news is Jesus' hands never get tired. They never get tired. Because Jesus is the greater Moses. Next, Jesus is the greater Joshua. The warrior savior. That name Joshua, it literally means Jehovah is salvation. And guess what that name is in Greek? Jesus. Jesus. And so while Joshua was a mighty warrior who fought on behalf of the Israelites, he is but a shadow of the true reality, the reality of the ultimate warrior who fights on behalf of his people. Remember when we did our Revelation series back in Revelation 19? Oh, I love this. This is actually one of my wife's favorite passages. She loves the image of Jesus on the white horse. And she tells a story. I always imagine him picking me up and putting me on the horse with him which will probably get mad at me for even sharing that with you, but it's true. <laughs> Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in the fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Joshua, with his little ragtag army, overcame, overwhelmed, it says, the Amalekites. That's a shadow, dark shadow of this reality to come, of Jesus overwhelming with a capital O his enemies. It is this warrior, Jesus, who prays for you and fights for you. Indeed, Jesus is the greater Moses, and Jesus is the greater Joshua. Would you pray with me? Father, fill us with this truth today, and may it take root, and may it encourage us. Many, many in these rooms are facing battles today that are bigger than we are. Oh, but greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. Nothing is too difficult for our God. With you, all things are possible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We thank you that you are the greater Moses. You are the greater Joshua. You are constantly interceding for us, constantly praying for us. Again, God, may that reality encourage someone who needs to know that today. God, I pray for anyone who does not yet know you as Lord and Savior. May today be the day they cross the line of faith. And God, I pray that this reality of prayer being the cause of spiritual victory, the key. God, would you continue to shape us and mold us and cause us to be that family of prayer, that community of prayer, that house of prayer that you intend for us to be. In all of our small groups, our ministries, our teams, our, all these different places that we gather together in community, may prayer become a much greater and higher priority. May it be more than tokenism. May it be dependence because we are facing a very real enemy who comes to seek and to kill and to destroy. And so God, may we pray like Moses and may we fight like Joshua. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.